Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father God, this is a text that I, in my human and fleshly heart, just wish was not in the Bible. Because I wish I could more justifiably argue for a case that to follow after Jesus leads to health, wealth, and all prosperity. That you don't have stories where the people who you have called to follow you and do so with a mix of faithfulness, but overwhelmingly or overall walk towards you, still experience darkness, still experience pain, still experience genocide. And that's really easy to sit in our culture and to brush past this story and rush into the rest of the more familiar, more fun parts of the book of Exodus. But Lord, I pray that we would be more intellectually honest than that, and we would be more honest about the way that the world actually works than that. And that we might not find that pushing us away from you, but rather us leaning into you, because you are intellectually honest enough to present that in your story. You're not a faith that runs from the pain of this world. You're not one that plasters over it. But you're one that that truly embraces and then writes your story in the midst of it. Writes your story using it. So Lord, I pray that we would be moved. And not just moved. Moved to fear. To fear you in the midst of that story. In the midst of that reality. I pray that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. April 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin, I believe I pronounced that correctly. My Eastern European descendants can tell me differently. But either way, he becomes the first man to enter into space. And the reason that you don't remember studying that is because he's not American, he's a Russian. And he enters into space, and he's quoted, uh, quoted famously or potentially debatably quoted famously as saying, I looked and I looked and I looked and saw no God there. And C.S. Lewis, a apologist and Christian and uh, just a writer for the faith uh, of that same time and a contemporary of that time, famously writes to Yuri, and he says, to expect to go up to space and to see God is like Hamlet going up to his attic to try to meet Shakespeare. 
He said categorically it is a false way of viewing how God presents the realms of this world to work. He's not just up really high, but rather he is in a realm completely different than you can experience, at least where the worlds, the kingdoms of heaven and earth have been separated due to sin. And in that story, you see a age-old question being asked and an attempt of it being answered of where is God in the darkness of space? Where is God, not just the darkness of space, in the darkness of planet Earth, in the darkness of your life and my life? And where, how is he still getting to snow us over on the fact that he is a good author of a story. See, we're starting a series in the book of Exodus, and we started last week, but this is where we actually break into the book of Exodus, and we'll be in this series kind of as we've been telling you throughout this last couple months. We'll be breaking up the book of Exodus with mini-series and different practices in our, our larger series of practicing the way of Jesus for the life of the world. And so we just got out of a series on the Sabbath, Solitude, and Silence, and we'll be in a series in about a month or so in prayer. But in this time, we have this getting into the first section of Exodus and to preach through text of the Bible, which is our MO as a church. We think that there's lots to be learned and lots to be gained just by going through books and just seeing what God has, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line. But I have the task of bringing to you Exodus 1, And Exodus 1 is dark. And I have the joy and the privilege of allowing us to not rush past Exodus 1, but to just sit in the darkness for a week. Because, again, there's this, uh, you think Exodus, and if you've been around the church at all, if you know church, if you know your Bible, or if you just are culturally familiar with some stories that you could put generally in the book of Exodus, you're probably putting stuff like burning bushes and parting of Red Seas and maybe some plagues and some death angels, yes, but ultimately it's kind of good news, and it foreshadows Jesus and all these things, and then they're going to Mount Sinai and they're getting commandments. But before they get to any of that, Before we get to Moses, before we get to God showing up in a bush that is burning yet not consuming itself, we get Exodus 1. And Exodus 1 is setting a stage that we would sit in the darkness, we would relate to the darkness, and we would see that God is writing his story of light, not in spite of the darkness, but with the darkness. And so, God is writing his story, and I can show you that for the very first word of verse 1, chapter 1. In fact, it's a word before the word that the ESV chose to put that they don't even put in. It's in your text, if you're looking at the Black Bible, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came from Egypt with Jacob each of his household. Now, there's a word, like I said, that's not even in the translation that's actually there. But before I say that, first, let's just address the fact that this book opens up with a genealogy, which is like what you shoot yourself in the head and flip the page when you're reading in a Bible plan. (laughs) But the whole purpose of a genealogy is to link the past to the now, to the present, to remember that you are still reading a continual story and that there is something that has happened 
that is still pertinent at the beginning of Exodus 1. And again, you get this even more by the untranslated word and. It is the first word of Exodus if they translate it literally. The very first word is either and or you might translate it now. Now these are the names of, just, uh, the, names of the sons of Israel. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Because Exodus is part of a five-part series, it's never meant to be read alone. It is part two of the Pentateuch, the book of five. And so as you read Exodus, you are meant to have Genesis seared into your mind, which is why Tayshon last week preached from Genesis 50 and the story of Joseph to bring to your minds everything that had led to this moment, which we preached through a series of Genesis a couple years ago. But in case you weren't there then or last week, let me just briefly, and I, I don't have to do it nearly as extensively as I would need to because of Tayshon's sermon last week, but let me briefly get us all on the same page and, and just hit the few highlights of Genesis that really play into that and. And of course, the first highlight of Genesis that every Genesis highlight reel has to include is creation. Because creation, the first moment, I mean, Jesus is uh, a savior as he's talking through the scriptures regularly. You hear him very steeped in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. It is where all of the Bible just comes out of. And so you have to always go to the fact of the first creation of God making all things, of him showing what reality is supposed to be like. And then as he makes all things good and he makes man and woman and makes them very good, then he gives them the cultural mandate. And the cultural mandate is to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And I always find it just an interesting thing in this world where, like, I mean, literally the command is to basically go crazy and have lots of babies and to have more babies than are currently in the world right now. And I'm always like, now that we're having our fourth kid, my wife and I can honestly check off the box, we have multiplied. (laughs) And I am always get to enjoy the fact that you with your one to three kid families— get to go out and just say that you added. That's all you've done. You, uh, you've added to the situation. You have not multiplied. You have not obeyed the Great Commission. Or uh, not the Great Commission, the, the cultural mandate. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, go and enjoy your nicer vacations and, um, <laughs> and your guest bedrooms. And, uh, you know, not having to utter the phrase, if the noise volume doesn't cut in half, I'm going to freaking kill myself. <laughs> but you haven't fulfilled the cultural mandate. Either way, you get the cultural mandate in Genesis. And then from there, sin enters into the world through humanity. And you get the next, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are showing creation, beauty, and then chaos in a downward spiral into darkness. And one story after the next just shows God keeps trying to work with suboptimal situations and humanity has propensity to screw things up. And so then in that moment, and everything seems completely like God just keeps restarting the thing, keeps trying to bring beauty out of chaos, and humanity keeps bringing chaos out of beauty. You get Genesis 12, where God comes to a single family, a single person, and says, Abram, who will become Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you, and your descendants are going to bless all the nations of the earth. And then you get that promise reaffirmed in Genesis 15, which Sean brought out last week. Uh, uh, There you even get an expansion of the promise. You get God saying to Abraham, hey, go look at the stars, and if you can count them, that's how many your descendants are going to be, and you are going to travel and be in a place that is not your home country, and you will be 
tortured you will be brutally treated there but yet you will come out of there with riches and treasures and i will take you into the wilderness into my promised land i mean he totally larry birds it if you're familiar with the larry bird career where he would just commonly go to players of the other team tell them the play they were about to do and then do it in front of their faces because he could And so in that moment of Genesis 15, and then you flash forward and you continue to track along the story, Abraham does have a child, even though he and his wife are beyond biological child-having years. And then that child has children, and out of that you get Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and there you get the 12 tribes of Israel that are mentioned at the beginning of Exodus. And those people are going to eventually find themselves starving, But they send Joseph by trying to make him a slave because they hate him and think he's daddy's favorite. They send him on to Egypt. He goes on to Egypt. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt and then comes up with a plan while all the land goes into famine of how to ration food and to save everyone, including his brothers who show up to Egypt begging for food. And he utters the words where Tashon really camped out last week, which are very important, not only the book of Genesis. In fact, I would say you could sum up the book of Genesis in the one verse. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then you jump right into, and now these are the tribes. These are the sons of Israel. And they're going to talk about, hey, these are the 12 sons that came from the line of Abraham. And then they became 70 persons. And and you see in chapter 6, or verse 6, God really just saying, this is how I write my story. He said, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Now that should be sending off hyperlink neurons going through your brain. Because that should be connecting you to Genesis 1, the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That also should be triggering your mind to go to Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will multiply you. In Genesis 15, I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars. And then it's supposed to say to you, okay, God's doing it. He's making it happen. This is it. But just like in Genesis, when he first gives the be fruitful and multiply commandment, what is immediately introduced next is a villain where it says in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal surely with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So you get this figure that is introduced as one who is directly opposing the be fruitful and multiply command and blessing given to the tribes of Israel. What is being set up for you is an anti-God figure. One who will oppose God's commands, oppose his blessings. Where God attempts to bless, he will attempt to curse. You, You get this just almost liar, like, in some ways he's larger than life. In some ways, he's every figure in history that we've ever seen. Where he starts with trying to 
get rid of a problem or tamper down a people through fear-mongering. Collecting his people, collecting his advisors, and starting to toss out hypothetical situations of how a people could grow and then take over. Which, let's give him the fact, they were getting numerous. God had totally fulfilled his, his promise to Abraham of them becoming more numerous. At this point, Many historians believe that the people of Israel had grown from that 70, and then over the years that they're in Egypt, they grow to about three and a half to four and a half million. It's roughly the population of Seattle. And so now that's just one people group sitting amongst the Egyptians. There's a reason why you would get nervous. So he starts this, well, what if they join our enemies? What if they leave us and we don't have their, uh, they leave the contributions they make to the economy? And he starts creating a place of nationalistic fear of we need to protect our resources, our opportunities, our people has major echoes into the modern day right now. And so he creates this fear and as he does, he says, here's the solution will put them into hard slavery. Which I had to start asking myself, why is that the solution to curbing the population? And I guess there's a few potential ideas of, one theologian said there's possible that the slavery like just separated males from females and just kept them apart from each other. Or he said there's also just the possibility of you just get worn out, you know, and uh, you're just kind of tired at the end of the day and you're not making babies. And I think that maybe... While those also could be true, the most likely idea is that there has always been a direct correlation between a people's group propensity to hopefulness and the fertility rate. That there is always the words of, if I am hopeful, if I am excited about opportunities, then I am more willing to have children, to increase and multiply. But if things look dismal and dark and gray, I retract word. And why would I want to bring a child into this cool, cruel and cold world? And so he sets apart, whatever his reason, he sets this idea of slavery uh, to create a population curbing, a anti-God, anti-cultural mandate, anti-blessing of Abraham pattern. And... Then as it goes on, you get verse 12, where it says this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. See, what's interesting is God uses the mandate that was meant to decrease the population, and he uses it to bring further his story, further his mandate, further his blessing. But Pharaoh doesn't give up. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them named Shifra, and the other Pua. Break from the sermon just for a moment to say that my prediction in the year of 2019, there will be a streamable original series named Shifra and Pua. It will be a little Handmaid's Tale meets Grace and Frankie. <laughs> Back to the sermon. 
If that does happen, by the way, you will know that I am a savant in cultural analysis or someone in the creative industry is listening to these sermons. And I want credit. <laughs> Name Shifra and Pua. And where were we? Oh, gosh. Verse 16. And you serve, uh, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Of course, they ask the question, why just sons? And of course, there's a couple of reasons to that. I mean, one is daughters, women, can be useful. You can utilize them as property, and you can utilize them to able to mix and blend races and to continue to produce heirs for the Egyptians. Also, it's just a simple fact that Pharaoh and the people of his time would see women as weaker, see them as not posing a true threat. And so we'll get back to the irony, actually, of that situation in just a second. But continuing on, verse 20. Actually, no, hold on. Before we get there, I want to connect it to where we've been. So uh, verse 17 again. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them, which is just a fascinating moment of them coming up with a, well, why did you not enact my plan. Well, you know, the Hebrew women, I mean, they're vigorous. They give birth, they clean up, and they're nursing as they chop wood by the time we get there. <laughs> and like, he, Pharaoh, in like some level, is just like, well, that's true. Those women are lumberjacks. All right. You know, like, <laughs> he goes with it. And so verse 20, it says, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. What's interesting here is you continually see this pattern. A Pharaoh attempts to bring cursing, to go against the multiplication that was commanded to God's people and blessed to them. And as he continues to try to prevent it and curb it and increasingly, hey, we'll just do slavery. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, we'll secretly try to off the males. Okay, that didn't work. But we will publicly make a genocidal claim to off all the males. And every single time he tries to press more cursing in the world, God subversively brings blessing. I mean, you see that even with the midwives. Who, because they fear God, he gives them families. He takes care of them. He protects them. I mean, they realize at this point they're opposing Pharaoh. And to not go along with his plan, if the whole, hey, they're vigorous thing doesn't work out, means they die. But instead, they're protected. And not only they're protected, they're, they are given the ability to increase and multiply. God is continually bringing his story and arduous, and he is stubborn to the fact that his story will be written, no matter the attempts to subvert it. And what's really interesting there is, again, to this issue of just leaving the women. Because, again, in the time and the culture and the space, women were less than human. That's the nice way of saying it. They were seen as lesser than. They were seen as no threat to any. I mean, if anything, we can just collect all the women and traffic them. What's really interesting is if you look through the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, it is five women that collectively bring down the plan of Pharaoh. 
You have Shifra and Puah, the midwives. And then you have the mother of Moses, who decides to ship her child off in a basket rather than throwing him in the Nile. You have the sister of Moses, who goes ahead and watches that baby as it bumps into the daughter of Pharaoh, who takes the baby, has pity on him, and then says, hey, this is a Hebrew baby. We need to find someone. Sister of Moses steps in and says, I know just the woman, and brings the mother of Moses to nurse and care for the child. Say what you will about the Bible's portrayal of women, but I would say it actually shows them in this story as the strong warriors who bring down Pharaoh by standing up to the man. And so as Pharaoh leaves a group that he considers worthless and as he considers no real tangible threat, God actually uses that people, uses those women to bring him down. Continuing on, this idea that is set up uh, of blessing versus curse is interesting because, again, as it's showing and as I'm trying to painfully point out over and over again, God is going to write his story. And that's true in Exodus, and that's true of all of history. And so you can and should be very politically concerned and active in our world. You can and should be very active, not just in politics in a sense of being informed on current events and you know, voting, but you can and should be active in the actual politics of our city, which just meaning the way that society is arranged and building parts of the dilapidated areas of people's lives in our city, the neighbors and the coworkers around you, whether that be dilapidation through physical poverty or spiritual poverty or, or emotional poverty or what have you. But you also sit in the midst of all of that with the confidence and with the joy that God is writing his story. It doesn't matter if your candidate ultimately is elected or not, or if you think a tyrant has been elected or not. It doesn't matter if the next one that comes in the next administration is worse or not. Again, it doesn't encourage apathy, so whatever. Just let God do what he's going to do. No, he works very much through the lives of these people. I mean, isn't it interesting? God doesn't show up mentioned in the book at all until all of a sudden it says he blesses the, the midwives. Up to this point, people have just been seemingly acting without the sovereign hand of God. But yet when you look backwards in the story, you see that through their actions, their choices, through their deciding to enter in, he uses them in the story. And so, yes, continue to know that on the international, on the national, on the global. And then you also just know it on the personal. So uh, (laughs) this week, if you've talked to me at all, you know, I've basically sat in a vein of bitterness uh, because my family and I were, um, were under contract on a house a couple blocks from here. And uh, the sellers decided they could get more offers if they just relisted on the market, even though it was under contract. And they got more offers. And they got us to drive up the price, and then they, we got outbid. And uh, now, because we re-entered the bidding process, we can no longer pursue legal action uh, from them breaking contract. So there's nothing I can do about it but I got a pulpit and I'm going to (laughs) complain. So either way, in the midst of that, I mean, there was just, I woke up 
Thursday, or was it? Yeah, Thursday morning? Thursday morning in just a real place of, uh, I'm editing a lot of words. Uh, I'll leave it there. And, and so I, I was just in a, yeah, in a bad place because there was just so many unique things about the scenario that had fallen in our lap in a really crazy way. And it just, in a lot of ways, it's like, man, that felt like the last chance to be able to move from not in this immediate neighborhood into the neighborhood. And while it's probably not, it just felt like that. And again, as we've continued to look, we've looked at several houses since then that have been like purchased right from under our, our looking. Like we're in the house. and like, this house has been purchased. So you have to leave now. And uh, okay, fair enough. All right. Uh, we, and in all of that, uh, we just came to the point of like, I, I don't know, maybe we don't get to move. Maybe we don't get to move into this immediate neighborhood right now. And while... I sat in bitterness. I then drove into work and opened up Exodus 1 and read it and studied it all day and read over these words all day. And yeah, this is a real, real small, petty story compared to slavery and genocide. But at the same time, I had to leave work that day with the sense of God's writing a story. And he does what he does. And so in the midst of that, though, I would say we can say, okay, God writes a story, but we also have to be okay with the fact that our sometimes our stories don't make sense in the midst of that. Like, again, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast off into the Nile, and you shall let every daughter live. I mean... Again, in this story, you see the, the Hebrew people, the people of God, go through forced, wicked labor. They go through, I mean, they're beaten, you see, in chapter 5. And so we can only assume that the tyrannous labor included that probably all the way through, but they're beaten even more vigorously once it turns up the heat in chapter 5. And then eventually they're led into genocide. genocide. And again, I don't want us to rush past this to be like, well, yeah, Moses is coming. Because this lasted for 400 years. I mean, multiple generations were born, lived, and died in this scenario. I mean, I, as one who is now waiting for our last child to be born, and I mean, we were excited because we had three boys, and when we actually, this, we never not the gender until this time, but my wife was just like, I just got to know if we're going to be the all-boy family now. And when we were like sitting there, like in the ultrasound, waiting for the information of it's a boy or is it a girl, there was no angst or fear in our heart to say, well, if it's a boy, it's, there's the most despicable situation is going to play out for this, this child's short life. There's no fear. There's no pain. There's no, I hope, I hope, I hope it's this gender so they live. But yet every woman lives for that in 400 years. And, and so the Bible, again, is no, has no qualms with presenting pain and suffering in this world, which is really consoling. I mean, again, I wish it didn't because I wish we could just be like, it, you don't have to really go through pain. Just believe in Jesus and phew, you'll get the house coming right back to you. You'll get the children that you've lost come right back to you. 
You'll get the marriage that you've lost right back to you. You'll get the relationships that are, are only causes consternation and pain. They will, justice will be served, rights, or wrongs will be righted. But because our world is not like that, I'm really grateful that the Bible doesn't try to paste over it. I'm really grateful that my life in big and small ways squares with the story of God. And I know that some of you are here and your life is Exodus 1. And you're dealing with diagnoses. For you, for others, you're dealing with infertility, uh, relationshiplessness. You're dealing with just looking at your life and thought, I would... I had pictured something much different for myself. Growing up, on this wedding day, on this moment, I thought everything was going to go much differently than it has to this point. And I would say, questions come to us like, why and where is God? Let me give you a few answers. The first one is going to be the one that dominates all the answers. And it's this. I don't know. I have not come to a point or met the person who has studied the scriptures enough to give a definitive answer as to why. And the people that do give definitive answers as to why, I don't trust. So I, I, I don't know. Um, but I'd also say this. You're not alone. Scripture is filled with Abraham and all the people of Genesis and the Hebrews, the Israelites in Exodus and David as he's running for his life after he'd been anointed king and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the disciples that have become the apostles and Paul and everyone throughout scripture just constantly getting to these points that are like, I have to ask why and where is God? And that's pretty much 60% of the book of Psalms. Pretty much all of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And good chunks of the New Testament. And so you're not alone. But then I'd also say that God always presents, that he's, actually not presents, but he's always present with his people even when it appears otherwise, and he's always ruling, even when it appears otherwise. Again, it's interesting, just the eerily placed absence of mention of God in this chapter. But yet, if you go back to Genesis 15, again, you know this is something that God had told Abraham was coming. You're going to go, you're going to be a sojourners, you're going to be oppressed in a land that's not your own, but you're going to come out of that land. You're going to be given riches and treasures. I'm going to take care of you. And again, God subverts what people mean for curse and he uses it for blessing, which is just continually reminding me, and I would say by way of this morning, you, do not judge any given season as to what God is doing, if God is good, or what the end will be. I mean, this is 400 years. I heard a pastor once 
um, talk about he'd gone to a, like a, a Catholic abbey to just have a personal retreat. And uh, he said he got in a conversation with a Catholic and was just talking about all these things that he was thinking about and thinking through. And this Catholic, Catholic man looked at him and said, you Protestants baffle me. He said, you measure time by years and decades. He says, the Catholic Church has always measured time by centuries and millennia. And he was really struck by the profoundness of the idea of, of yeah, I, I'm demanding a microwavable product from God. When God shows that he is, has very little concern for timeliness as he works out the salvation and restoration of the entire world. And so he's, I heard someone say this really corny, but yet stuck with me kind of phrase of saying that God is never late. He's rarely early and he's always on time. And in that moment of processing that, you'd be like, okay, I get that we had to go through, like, they get all the treasures and, you know, that you're going to see later in the book of Exodus. They come out. They're actually blessed for all this. But, like, isn't there another way? Like, that's a really bad ATM. And, uh, like, do we have to go through 400 years of suffering? Like, what's the point of that? And, and I would say this, and this is really pertinent as we are, again, mixing this book in the midst of spiritual formation. Because Exodus pairs really well with spiritual formation because it's basically a book of how God forms his people to be his people and no longer slaves. And that's what we're doing as a series of spiritual formation. How is God forming us to be people, his people and no longer slaves? And so it's interesting as you look at this book and you look at this idea of the primary way that God tends to form his people away from slavery and the taste of sin is through pain. There's a book uh, also written by C.S. Lewis in his fictional series, The Chronicles of Narnia, but it's less talked about, called The Silver Chair, in which there's a group of characters that are taken down into a cave under the earth. And then they are given food and given warmth and given all these comforts. But then also it's a place that's dark and dreary and there's a character in the cave that tries to convince them that everything that they thought was true about the above ground world was actually just a part of their imagination. There are no stars. There is no warmth of the sun. There is no fresh air. There is no grass. Everything that is in this cave is all that there is. And as they continue to eat, they're like drearily, sleepily brought into this lie until one of the characters in his sleepy state stumbles his foot into the fireplace and the fire burns his foot and the pain wakes him up. And it wakes him up to eventually look at the character and say, I don't know if all of that stuff that you now tell us wasn't real, is real or not, but if this is the only world there is, then it's not one much worth living. So I will live as if there's a Narnia, even if there is no Narnia. I will live as if there's freedom, even if there is no freedom. Because babies playing a game could come up with a better world than you have. It's pain 
that wakes him up. There's so much experience in this life, particularly in our culture, that just makes us fall asleep. Fall asleep spiritually, fall asleep personally, to the point where, like, I've now heard and those who've talked with missionaries or pastors in third world countries and in persecuted countries for their faith, and they are constantly saying, we're praying for you Americans. (laughs) Because it's really easy to fall asleep here. And they live in contexts where it's really hard to do so. It's really easy to stay awake and alert and and holding on to God. And some of you are there and have been there. Like you just know the time where like there was a time where your life went sideways and it was really easy to pray. It was really easy to read your Bible and to take time and to beg for God to be present. And then there's a part of you that when you get out of that season, you're like, I'm glad that my life is no longer upside down, but I kind of miss my intimacy to God. God uses pain. He uses suffering. And I, I don't know if that's why it's in your story right now. I'm not going to try to say that. But I do know that there have been seasons in my life where God has inflicted pain, where he's inflicted scenarios that I would not have chosen and still would not probably choose again. But now, retroactively, seeing the way he has shaped me through those, ways that he has broken my grip of things that were going to kill me if I didn't let go and replaced it on him, that which will actually bring life. I mean, it's, it's crazy because that's what actually happens in Exodus. I mean, if you look at the end of chapter 2, you actually see the people in the midst of all this pain crying out to God. It says that in verse 23 of chapter 2, during those uh, many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Their cries actually become prayer. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw his people Israel and God knew. And then you also get, after they travel through the Red Sea, I mean, after that moment where like they experience all of the plagues and they go out into the wilderness and now Pharaoh decides actually I want to kill them all and he just pursues them all and their backs are up against a sea like I mean I don't know what we think of when we think of but we're talking a sea is what they are pressed up against and they can't get around and then God opens that up they walk through it and then the very first worship song recorded in all of scripture comes of the song of Moses and God has been faithful and he's delivered us and he has done great things There is something about pain that wakes us up, that breaks our grip from things that will destroy our souls and puts it on the one thing that our soul is meant to delight in. And then everything else becomes gifts. So in a sermon like this and in pressing into questions like these, there's one question and one takeaway. In fact, I don't come up with it. I'll let the text do it. Exodus 1, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Again, suicide mission if it goes badly. But they do it because they feared God. 
Simple question. Who or what do you fear? Because if you fear God, you take him very seriously. You take his word seriously. You take his commandments seriously. You take his power to do anything and to create light out of darkness seriously. You take pain not as seriously. You take destruction. You take downturns. You take all of the things that our hearts otherwise fear losing less seriously. Because think about if you fear losing career opportunity, that will enslave you. You will work all your life. You will work harder, faster, more, and there will always be more to accomplish. There'll be more to be done. There'll be another number to get to. You'll sacrifice your family on the altar of it. You'll sacrifice your health. You'll sacrifice your happiness. And in the end, it will demand everything of you. And then it will not die for you. The second you betray it, it will demand that you sacrifice yourself for it. That's what idols do. They demand everything, and then they take your life. They put you under slavery, and then they convince you that you could not live apart from it. It's a really abusive relationship. But just like someone in the midst of an abusive relationship that's too close to it, you just can't see it until pain wakes you up sometimes. That's true of career. That's true of pursuing a family. That's true of fear of missing out. That's true of, I mean, you pick it. It will demand everything from you. And it will not sacrifice for you. But it will demand that you die for it. See, fear of anything other than God is by definition dehumanizing. It makes you a slave. But fear of God is by definition humanizing. Because when you fear God, I mean, if you're his enemy, the fact that his eyes are always upon you, his plans never fail, his promises are always true, and that what he wills always will be done is terrifying. But if you're his kids, if he's one who's continually saying, I've, I'm your father and I know what's best and I'm leading you to a place that you may not choose on your own if you just had the choice by choice scenario, but if you saw the end, you would beg me not to change it. Then that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I can take downturns. I can take pain. I can take darkness. I can take having those other things taken from me, career success, money, family, missing out, better opportunities going by me. I can take that because I know I have a good father who is giving me good gifts and every good blessing is coming down from above. And as he is directing all things, he's using darkness to write a story of light. Fearing God makes you fearless in the world. I mean, even look at Jesus. Look at his story. It is the ultimate story of I will take darkness and create light. I will take death and suffering and create salvation and life 
for the entire world, which is what we remember at communion. I mean, that's why we come to a point each week where we are remembering this idea that God takes the most dark of situations. Hey, here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you. Really weird stuff if you're not a Christian and don't know the context. But if you know the context, you realize that God's saying, hey, if the death, suffering, execution, torture of God can be used to bring in the most beautiful story that you can imagine, then just think what I'm doing with your story. Think of what the raw materials I'm using there, I can turn that and will turn that into beauty over time. And so if you're here, if you're a Christian, we invite you to take communion at the stations around us. Be one in the front, one in the back, and the gluten-free up here.